Well, good morning again. Great to be with you. Keep your Bible open, would you, to Genesis chapter 1, where we're going to be this morning. In our fourth and final, I'm sorry to say, final uh, sermon in this short, just month-long series entitled Mere Creation, where we've been thinking about the doctrine of creation from the book of Genesis, the first chapter. And one thing I think has become clear through the sermon series that we could easily preach another four sermons on this whole topic, probably 44 more sermons on this whole topic. I recognize I'm leaving lots of important questions on the table uh, as it relates with the doctrine of creation and and the book of Genesis, chapter 1. Of course, we haven't even gotten into chapter 2. There's a lot more there. Maybe we can come back at some future point for mere creation, part 2 as a sermon series. We might do that. Who knows? But, but here we are this morning finishing up the sermon series, and we just had it read for us, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. And we're going to talk about this morning a ticklish topic, a topic that we should all be concerned about as it relates with the doctrine of creation is the doctrine of creation of human beings of you and me. And so you may have seen the title I gave for this morning's message. It it is certainly my longest title in this sermon series. It may be one of my longest titles ever. Got two Latin phrases in there. Did you see it in the bulletin, right? Between Homo sapiens and Homo deus, humanity in God's image. I like geeking out on long titles sometimes with sermon titles, right? So this is a long title. But it's intended to make an important point. What I want to do this morning is I want to speak about humanity created in God's image from Genesis chapter 1, but I want to do it by situating it, positioning it in contemporary culture and in particular contemporary science. So how is it that in contemporary culture and contemporary science, people think about you and me, about human beings and what it means to be a human being. I want to I take this morning's message in this text of Genesis and situate it in the context of contemporary science and contemporary culture so that we're not just doing a fun kind of biblical game here this morning that doesn't really have any touch points to the world around us. And so I've entitled the sermon this morning between Homo sapiens and Homo deus. Two ideas to frame this morning's message on the image of God and humanity. On the one hand, Homo sapien. On the other hand, Homo deus. Two ideas. You might say two visions of who we are, who you are, you and I are. Homo sapien on the one hand, Homo deus on the other hand. And so take the, on the one hand, Homo sapien. What is that trying to capture? It's a, obviously a Perhaps the most widespread vision of who we are as human beings has been sort of promulgated and emphasized and stressed since the time of Darwin for probably the last 150 years. The punchline being that we are in strong continuity with the rest of the animal kingdom. The stress for the last at least century has been that we are more or less animals. We are essentially animals. Animals. We are just one particular species among many similar species. And in fact, in evolutionary accounts of human origins, where we came from, we weren't the only Homo species, right? There are others. Homo erectus, Homo habilis, Neanderthals, and others, many others, in fact. That's what scientists are telling us today. 
And what's the distinctive thing about Homo sapien? We are like uh, many other, an- we're kind of in continuity with other animals. What's the difference with us? We've developed a larger cranium capacity, so we have a bigger brain. We can make more sophisticated and use in a more sophisticated way tools. It gives us a survival advantage. And so voila, here we are at the top of the evolutionary food chain, homo sapien. Literally, there's two little Latin words, wise man. Probably more accurately, wise animal. That's who we are according to contemporary culture, so much of it in contemporary science. 96 plus percent shared DNA with chimpanzees. Yes, we walk a little more uprightly. Yes, we have a little bit less hair. Some of us a lot less hair. Got a bigger brain. You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, this is, this is who we are in contemporary science. This is, this is how we are viewed. Pick up an issue of National Geographic. Thumb through your son or daughter's sixth grade science biology textbook. Go to a research lab at MIT or Harvard, you will find this vision of human beings as homo sapien in strong, kind of unbroken continuity with the rest of the animal kingdom. Nothing especially distinctive about human beings. Just a slightly bigger brain, that's all. To quote one famous evolutionary biologist, says this, quote, In the world of Darwin, man has no special status other than his definition as a distinct species of animal. He is, in the fullest sense, a part of nature and not apart from nature. He is akin, not figuratively, but literally related to every living thing, be it an amoeba, a tapeworm, a flea, a seaweed, an oak tree, or a monkey. Nothing distinctive about you. You are homo sapien. I am homo sapien in full continuity with the rest of the animal kingdom. A slightly more sophisticated primate, another animal with a slightly bigger brain. Homo sapien. That's all we are. That's one vision of what it means to be a human being in contemporary science and contemporary culture, and we are no doubt all familiar with that. That's been a kind of reigning vision of what it means to be a human being for the last 150 years at least. So homo sapien on the one hand. Now, on the other hand, there's this interesting development taking place with the advent and the advance of technology. And this creature called Homo sapien using technology and taking technology and wedding it, listen, to biology and propelling forward the development of Homo sapien with technology into something beyond Homo sapien in our evolutionary life cycle. And this creature is called Homo deus. It's an ideology, it's a movement that is not necessarily in research laboratories at MIT, but you'll find it in coffee shops in Silicon Valley. It's a way of thinking about the human person and where we're headed with the advance of technology. Homo Deus, literally, God-man, God-man. I recently picked up a, a really fascinating book. It's a big book. It's a heavy book uh, by an Israeli scholar named Yuval Harari, entitled just that, Homo Deus, 
A Brief History of Tomorrow. This is his second book. The first book he wrote came out a couple of years ago and has been widely hailed as this fantastic book, so on and so forth. It's entitled Sapiens, and it's looking at the last 70,000 years of human history, human evolutionary history from Harari's perspective, right? And what he found, very interesting, what he found is he went around touring and giving lectures about his first book, which talks about our human history, our past, from a scientific perspective. What he found is that when he would go and lecture about this, people wouldn't ask him about our past. They would want to ask him about our future. And so he wrote this second book called Homo Deus. And what he says in the second book is what he thinks is going to be the future of the human species. And not just him alone. He's gathering the opinions and the ideas and the research of lots and lots of people. And here is his basic thesis. This is a growing movement of how our culture views human beings. Homo sapien on the one hand, and now increasingly homo deus on the other hand, the God-man. Here is his thesis in a nutshell, that human beings in the 21st century, that is in our lifetime, my lifetime, certainly my children's lifetime, for sure, my grandchildren's lifetime in the 21st century are going to make, a, are going to have a good chance, he says, of upgrading themselves to the place of God's homo deus. Why such an audacious claim? Well, because as Harari says, we have as a species made incredible progress, in particular in the last couple of hundred years. Since the scientific revolution, since the industrial revolution, and now in particular since the technological revolution, what kind of progress have we made? Well, he argues, and fairly convincingly in a lot of ways, that we have eliminated three of the big issues that were deadly for human beings, for our species thus far in all of our history. What are those things? Disease, famine, and war. Disease, famine, and war. Not that we still don't have those things in our world, of course we do, but his point is not like we used to, nothing like we used to. And so he points out, to illustrate this, he points out that for the first time in human history, check this out, for the first time in human history, it is more likely that you and I will die of obesity than starvation. And so, too, for the first time in human history, we are more likely to die of old age than a kind of an infectious, infectious disease. Or for the first time in human history, we are more likely to commit suicide than die from war, crime, or terrorism put together. And so, as he says very tongue-in-cheek, McDonald's and Coca-Cola are a far greater threat than ISIS. And you have a thousand times greater chance of dying from eating too much food than of a terrorist attack. The industrial revolution, the technological revolution, taking this homo sapien and coupling this creature, this kind of wise man creature with technologies and propelling this creature forward into the future to transcend the very things that have dogged us in our whole history. Disease famine, and war. And so the bottom line in his sort of eschatological vision of the future, maybe already in the 21st century, is this, that we will use technology to solve the two final and great problems. On the one hand, death, and on the other hand, happiness. 
death and happiness. Taking technology to overcome death and using technology and brain chemistry and virtual technologies to overcome the problem of having a bad day. Overcoming death and overcoming happiness. And so as Harari says, we are fastly propelling ourselves to, to a new stage in our evolutionary history as Homo sapien, to Homo Deus, where we take on, through the help of technology, these godlike attributes and abilities and qualities. We are going to quickly become these little gods on earth who have solved the problem of mortality and solved the problem of unhappiness. From Homo sapien to Homo Deus, there's two visions of who we are as human beings as we are here at the beginning of the 21st century. And so you see, right, you see we find ourselves in a pretty interesting spot. (laughs) On the one hand, culture and society telling us we are very much like and little more than sophisticated animals. On the other hand, society and culture and, and contemporary science telling us that we are on our way to becoming a lot more than just animals, becoming gods on earth from Homo sapien to Homo Deus. Now, the biblical vision, as you can imagine, is a little bit different than either Homo sapien on the one hand or Homo Deus on the other hand. It's a little bit different. It's a third kind of vision I want to place in between the two of those visions. It is a vision of humanity created in God's image. So not merely homo sapien, yes, in continuity with other creatures, but not merely another creature, and yet not homo deus either, not not a surrogate God, but a human being, unique, yes, unique, and the vision this vision, this Christian vision is captured in this phrase in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and 27, the phrase, the image of God. Creatures created in the image of God, something very creaturely about us, but something godlike about us as well. We are made in the image and after the likeness of God himself, as the Bible says. And so what I want to do in this message is I want to explore this idea of what it means to be in the image of God, this distinctive thing of humanity in God's image between Homo sapien on the one hand, Homo Deus on the other hand, and I want to explore, kind of unpack some of the implications of what it means to be made in the image of God. I want to highlight three things in particular. You ready for these three things? This is the outline for the rest of the message. First, I want to highlight our unique identity as creatures made in the image of God, our unique identity. Secondly, I want to highlight our kingly responsibility. We have an identity, and from that flows a certain responsibility that is unique to human beings in all of creation. And then thirdly and lastly, I want to explore our intimate relationship. To be in the image of God means we have an intimate relationship with our Creator, which is unique to being a human being. Let's start with the idea of identity, can we? Let's start with the idea of identity from verse 26 of chapter 1. Being created, y'all, in the image of God 
has something profound to say about your identity and my identity, that we are unique, we are distinctive, we are special. We are creatures, yes, but we are more than creatures, the Bible would want to say. It's very interesting, though. Take a look with me at Genesis chapter 1. Very interesting, isn't it? How Genesis chapter 1, if you read Genesis chapter 1 in particular, the creation on the sixth day and what is created on the sixth day, not just human beings but animals as well, what you notice is the Bible does emphasize the human beings, that you and me, we are connected to other animals. There is a kind of continuity between us as creatures and other creatures. We didn't draw, you notice when God created human beings, he didn't sort of teleport them from another planet, didn't drop them out of the sky, didn't come down on a hovercraft or an Amazon.com drone onto planet Earth, right? They were created much the same way uh, the rest of the animals were created. In fact, did you notice we don't even get our own birthday in the Bible? Did you see that? We share the same birthday with like tadpoles and walruses and aardvarks, the sixth day of creation, with all the rest of the creepy crawly creatures on the earth. We have the same birthday. You notice verses 29 and 30, if you look down there, you notice we also eat the same food. We sustain ourselves in the same way. If you look ahead to chapter 2, verse 7, and then back to chapter 1, verse 20, you'll notice that we also share the same breath of life. We're both nephesh in Hebrew. We're both living creatures, us and the rest of the animal kingdom. We're formed from the same ground like the rest of the animals, and, and so on and so forth from this opening chapter of Genesis. An emphasis, check it out, an emphasis on human beings and our continuity with the rest of God's Creatures, the creepy, crawly things that crawl on the earth that are described on the sixth day as being created. And yet at the same time, notice, will you, how the text wants to emphasize that there's something really significant that happens with the creation of human beings. You can see it right there in the text. Notice, will you, how it's described, how the, the creepy crawly things are, are created and how that's described in verse 24. Look there in your Bible at verse 24. You'll notice the language, and God said, let there be, right? Let there be, let the earth bring forth these kinds of creatures. But notice the shift, notice the elevated tone, almost poetic, the kind of dramatic way in which verse 26 describes the creation of human beings. Not a let there be human beings, but you see it in there in verse 26. It's as though God is leaning into, in a special, unique way, the creation of humankind from let there be, verse 24, to let us make, verse 26. As though God is leaning into the creation of human beings, as though he reaches the crescendo and the, the climactic point in his creation of all the creatures on earth with the creation of human beings, this kind of let us make in our, own, in, in our own image, verse 26. Notice as well the use of the phrase, in the image of God, verse 26 as well. Notice it's only used of human beings, it's not used of any other creature. It is our distinctive quality as creatures. This idea of being in the image of God. And notice as well, the phrase is used to describe how God makes us. 
It's not a phrase that describes something human beings have. We don't have the image of God. Notice this. We are made in the image of God. The image of God isn't some capacity or characteristic you have. Rather, the image of God is the unique calling God has on your life as a creature made in His image. And this has huge implications for our identity, of course, for our sense of dignity, for the sanctity of life the unique sanctity of human life, and has huge ethical implications. Check it out for how, of course, we treat one another. So very interesting to note that the only other place that in the image of God is used in the Bible, other than a couple places here in Genesis chapter 1, is in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, you might want to to even turn over there in your Bible, turn there in your Bible. Genesis chapter 9, after Noah and the flood, you find there in Genesis chapter 9, Verse 6, the kind of law that God lays out for humankind, this newly created humankind, Genesis 9, verse 6, something very profound that is said here about the dignity of human beings and therefore the sanctity of human life, the inviolable nature of human life, that we are very, very precious to God because we're made in God's image. Genesis 9, verse 6 says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, that is Adam, right? By man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. Something hugely distinctive and unique. Dignity and sanctity in being a human being made in the image of God. So that, check it out, to offend a creature made in the image of God, to violate a creature made in the image of God is to violate God. And not just with violent actions, but the Bible goes on to apply this teaching to words. Remember James chapter 3? The profound passage in the New Testament, James chapter 3, where he talks about the tongue and rightly taming the tongue and And he then says these words, reflecting on this teaching of the image of God in Genesis 1, he says this, with our mouths, with our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. There's a dignity to human beings. There's a sanctity to human beings. To violate a human being is to violate God himself. This is the the kind of punchline. To offend a human being is to offend God himself. This is what Genesis chapter 1 is teaching through Genesis 9 all the way into the book of James. Human beings are, yes, they are like the other animals, and yet profoundly unique, distinct, and one of a kind. We are made, you see, in the image of God That's core to our identity. That's core to who we are as creatures. We are made in the image of God. That's our unique identity from verse 26. Let's now take a look at the second aspect of what it means to be the image of God, and that is we have a unique, or excuse me, we have a kingly responsibility from identity to responsibility. You see it right there in verse 26. Will you look there, verse 26? Let us make man in our image, the text says. And then notice where it goes from 
identity in the image of God to responsibility over the creation of God, the second part of verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and, or you might say, so that, so that, make man in our image so that this creature at the crown of creation can have dominion over the whole of creation. Or as the text says, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The image of God is a kingly identity. In the ancient world, you may know, in Egypt and Mesopotamia, places like this, kings were described as being in the image of God. Ironically or sadly, only the kings in the ancient world were described as being in the image of God. The Bible comes along and casts a much different vision. Not just the kings, but all of humanity is in the image of God. We reflect and represent God to one another and on this creation. We have this kingly identity as those in the image of God. And so as verse 26 says, we have this kingly responsibility as well for the whole of creation. To lovingly steward creation, to with wisdom and loving authority display God in all that we do as human beings. We have this sober, weighty responsibility to care for the whole of creation, yes, for ourselves and other human beings, but it goes beyond that, to the animal kingdom and to the natural world as a whole, to steward with wisdom and love the creation that God has established us as kings over. And so much of the time, we struggle with that, don't we? Just to speak candidly. Because of the fall, disordered lives, disordered hearts, disordered minds, and thus disordered relationship, yes, with God, yes, with one another, but yes, with the creation as well. We struggle to exercise dominion in a way that is loving and wise in the created order. I had a reminder of this last weekend. Katie and the kids were out of town for the weekend, so it was just my 16-year-old son Ezra and me home for the weekend. And I'm pleased to say that we survived, and the macaroni and cheese can be spread very thin if it needs to be over the course of a weekend. So we did all right. We went out a couple times as well, and that was a good time. But, but you know who took the biggest blow uh, when Katie and the kids were out of town over the weekend? It was not me or Ezra. It was our precious golden retriever, Harper. Right. I mean, at one point it got so pathetic because she's used to a lot more like walking and attention and petting and all the rest of it. And, and, and at one point it got so pathetic, Harper was getting so, I think, discouraged in her little golden retriever soul that she went and got one of Katie's walking shoes and brought it over and dropped it between her paws and laid down on the walking shoe and just was kind of looking at me in the kitchen like this, like, come on, man, <laughs> like exercise some wise dominion, <laughs> Right. See, a little picture of like how we struggle in our kingly responsibility over the whole of creation. Not with wise and loving authority as God has given us. But so often we struggle with that. We've been placed at the pinnacle of creation as human beings. An amazing thing. But that doesn't give us license to be tyrants over creation. We're to serve creation, not to dominate creation. We are the kings who exist not for ourselves, but to serve the kingdom in which we represent the king of kings, God himself. 
By the way, on this whole point before we transition, I, I got to say the, to the kids in the congregation this morning that if you've been hoping to get a pet and you've been cajoling mom and dad to get you like a gerbil or a bunny, this is the sermon for you because there is a whole theology of owning pets in this text. Moms and dads, I, I, I'm, not as, I'm not any more big of a fan than ones of you. I, 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 like, pets are okay from, from my standpoint, right? I mean, they're all right, right? I, mean, we got, I love my dog, right? And I've got two cats, and, you know, this whole deal. Uh, if I lived in a parallel universe, we wouldn't have any pets. Did I just say, I'm sorry, I just said that. But, any, you know, anyways. But moms and dads, there's something very significant when your son or daughter, your little son or daughter, like feeds the celery stick to the little bunny rabbit or, or like makes sure the goldfish gets fed or walks the dog or pets the cat or cleans the gerbil cage. There is something deeply and distinctively human happening in their hearts and lives. They are exercising the dominion talked about in verse 26. Like little kings and little queens, creatures made in the image of God. And so from everybody who is hoping to get a pet, can I get a little amen for that little pet sermon? Unique identity, kingly responsibility. But thirdly and finally, what it means to be made in the image of God is, I think, most importantly, it means this intimate relationship or intimacy of relationship. And I, as I said, this is probably the most important thing about what it means to be in the image of God. What you will notice in Genesis chapter 1, if you look at it, is that God, in particular, verse 24, on the day, on day 6 of creation, when he creates all the creepy, crawly things, he blesses them. Did you see that? He blesses the creatures, verse 24, that he's made. He blesses them this way. Let the earth, verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds and livestock, and it was so. And, and so God blesses them by saying, be blessed. But notice the difference in verse 26, or excuse me, verse 28, verse 28. When God has created human beings on the sixth day, he blesses them as well, verse 28, and God blessed them, but notice the blessing. Not a description about like, hey, be blessed, rather an address, a personal address Two human beings, check it out, verse 28, and God blessed them, and super significant, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion and so on and so forth. The key thing there, verse 28, underline, God said to them. The only creature that God addresses personally, the only creature that God communes with interpersonally, we are in so many ways like the other animals created on the sixth day. That's undeniable. It's there in the text It's been confirmed a thousand times over in contemporary science. We are in many ways like the other animals in creation. And yet, we are not like the other animals in so many ways. And in this way in particular, 
We're the only animal that prays. You might say the distinctive thing about us is that we are, if you'll excuse the expression, the praying animal. We are a creature like all other creatures, but we're a unique kind of creature. We're one who is addressed by God and in turn addresses God. And the address to God, the conversation with God, is what we call prayer. It's what we call worship. It is the expression of interpersonal communion with the living God, unique to humankind, unique to creatures created in the image of God. Intimate relationship. I I love the way Genesis chapter 2, check it out, verse 7. If you turn over there, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, I think gets at this idea of intimate relationship in imagery that, that might not strike you as describing this at first blush, but I think it's very much there. You'll notice verse 7 talks about the creation of man and that God formed him from the dust of the earth. I think that's a way of talking about humanity's mortality. From dust you have been made and to dust you shall return, as chapter 3 says about humanity's mortality. We are but dust, you might say. But then notice the second expression of verse 7, the one I want to draw your attention to in chapter 2, where it says this, that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Have you ever had anybody so up in your personal space they're breathing into your nostrils? Like, if you don't like the invasion of personal space, this isn't your thing. It requires, check it out, it requires a tremendous amount of closeness and connection and intimacy to breathe into someone's nostrils. A picture of the intimacy God the Creator enjoys with this creature called man. Intimate relationship. Up close, very personal, very intimate with God, the Creator Himself. And so you see, humanity in God's image, the Christian vision, the Christian vision of what it means to be a human being, between, on the one hand, Homo sapien over here, which is merely creature, all continuity, no distinctiveness, and Homo Deus, on the other hand, ascending to be like God, not really a creature anymore, transcending mortality and all of the rest of it, to become and ascend to be like God. Humanity in God's image standing right there in between. Unique identity, kingly responsibility, intimate relationship. Well, if you're looking for a good, provocative, interesting summer read, can I commend to you Yuval Harari's Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow, right? This would make a very interesting summer read, a pretty sobering read, a pretty fascinating read at the same time. You know, this idea of Homo Deus, in one sense, as he describes it, is a very optimistic ennobling, in a a sense, sort of picture of what it means to be a human being, that we are fast on our way to sort of transcending our mortality and all these other kind of limitations. You might say it's a very sunny and optimistic and happy picture of what it means to be a human being, right? Not just animals, but we're heading to something bigger and better, and we're moving there very quickly. We're heading towards Homo Deus. You get that kind of picture and message from the book. But the interesting thing is there's a shadow side in the book as well. 
Because what he says is this, that as Homo sapiens create this new species called Homo Deus, Homo Deus, this new species, may well do to Homo sapien what Homo sapien did to the Neanderthals, which is force their extinction. <laughs> and so as he describes in the book, once human beings, once Homo sapiens, take technology and merge it with our species, we will become faster and smarter and all the rest of it. And that group of Homo sapiens that have all that technological firepower and horsepower, we will transcend, they will transcend the rest of us, and we will become what he calls in the book a, what is, he, what is the expression he uses, a useless class. Like the vast majority of us, a useless class. Class, there'll be nothing for us to do because a handful of these man, these God mans, will be running everything and doing everything like Google embodied, right? Don't need to think, you just Google, right? And so most of us will be consigned to the useless class, but that will be okay in his kind of dystopic, kind of crazy future sad, scary vision because we will have Xbox and virtual reality and we'll have bearing chemistry enhancing drugs. We won't be doing anything, but we will be having a very good time doing nothing. That's the vision. As Homo Deus moves into uselessness and extinction, Homo sapiens, it's a pretty provocative thesis. And he's got enough stuff in the book to make you think there's something to it. There's something to it. Of course, the Christian wants to tell a different story about where this is all headed and what the meaning of all this is. And the Christian wants to tell the story that is not a story about the emergence of Homo Deus from Homo sapien. Rather, it's about the revelation of the one true God-man from heaven. We want to tell a story not about the inevitable progress of human evolution. We want to tell a story about the loving kindness of God, our Heavenly Father, revealing Himself in His Son. And we want to tell a story not about this new species called Homo Deus as a threat to Homo sapien, to the human species, but rather the gift of the one true God-man for the salvation of all human beings. You see, in the Christian story, there is only one Homo Deus, not an evolved, technologically enhanced Homo sapien, but Jesus Christ the God-man. And yet this God-man, Jesus, became God-man not to exploit or dominate human beings, but to give himself freely for the sake of us all to die in our place, to die in our stead. Think about it. Homo Deus for Homo sapiens. Amazing, mind-blowing, Countercultural narrative about where this is all headed, standing in the middle of Homo sapien and Homo Deus, but transcending and subverting the whole narrative in the person of Jesus. But that's just what God has done in Jesus, the one true God man. And so, with 
wonder and worship and adoration and praise. We stand back and see the gospel story that takes up humanity in our creatureliness and in our brokenness and redeems us and sends us on our way to glory with God the Father, Son, and Spirit forever and ever. We see all of that story and we say with the psalmist from Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you would care for him? What is human being that but a, but a, but a speck? And yet, as the psalmist rightly says, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Not homo deus, but, but a creature a little lower than the heavenly beings, and yet crowned him with glory and with honor. And not only that, y'all, crowned us through the cross, crucifixion of the King of kings, the only true God-man, crowned us with grace and mercy and forgiveness all through Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for the, the, the profound, and the, the countercultural, the counterintuitive in so many ways story that we get to tell as Christians laid out for us in the story of Scripture beginning in Genesis 1 and running all the way through Revelation of who we are as creatures made in your image, of what you've called us to, the sobering and the weighty and exalted responsibility you've laid upon us, the identity you've given us. And thank you for the mystery of mysteries that God would become incarnate in human flesh, the true God-man, to do for us what we could not begin to do for ourselves, to rescue us, to deliver us from our own sin, and to give us the gift of salvation. We bless you, Father. We thank you for making us in your image and for remaking us in your image through the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.